Good evening. I'm Russ Germain, and this is Ideas. The universe is essentially participatory. It is created by your act of perception. In some sense, the old philosopher's argument about realism and idealism, in some funny sort of a way, is getting answered in quantum mechanics. And it's getting answered that if an elementary tree falls in an elementary forest and no one is there to hear it, there is no sound. That's true at the elementary level. So you create your universe. The best description of reality that we can come up with at this level, this quantum level, is that it is an unmanifested reality and that one or another of its possibilities will manifest through your observer participants. Welcome to the third program in our series, Between Two Ages. Tonight we will examine the ways in which certain areas of science are contributing to a new way of looking at the world. Gradually, the old model of the universe as a great machine is giving way to a version of reality which is more subtle, more strange, and more unified than our earlier conception. Beginning from developments in quantum physics in the early years of this century, we have now come to a point where we can begin to speak scientifically about the fundamental interconnectedness of all things. This brings us to a vision of unity very similar to that proposed by Eastern and esoteric traditions of knowledge. And at the same time, it assists our reintegration with nature by showing us that we are not as separate either from nature or from each other as we may have once supposed. Tonight's program was prepared and is presented by David Cayley. The term science has two quite different meanings for us. On one level, it denotes a professional activity, done exclusively by licensed scientists, reported on in a patchy way in the back pages of our newspapers, and of concern to the majority of people only in the form of certified marvels like moon landings or terrors like nuclear reactors. But science is much more than this. At a very basic level, it is a cultural way of knowing in which our very perceptions of the world are shaped and in which we are all unavoidably involved. In this sense, what we popularly call science is a deeply conditioned cultural attitude towards the world, which has taken shape over centuries. Gregory Bateson once remarked that if you want to understand the principle of bilateral symmetry in a chicken, you had better not begin by cutting the chicken in half. Bateson's dismembered chicken exemplifies the attitude that has been characteristic of our science in its classical embodiments. We have divided reality in order to dominate it, and in the process we have often grievously misunderstood it. The hallmark of this attitude is what Theodore Rozak has called the alienative dichotomy. That is the idea that there is an in here and an out there which are quite distinct from each other. Whether this turns up in Newtonian physics as the idea of the independent observer or in journalism as the myth of objectivity, it is a culturally pervasive idea. We believe devoutly in our separateness, and we believe that by dissecting things we can achieve a true knowledge of their functioning. To put it simply, we have preferred a fragmentary to an integrated or holistic style of analysis. This attitude is now beginning to change under the pressure of new conceptions. 
In physics, we have seen the revolutions begun by quantum mechanics and relativity theory proceed to the point where it is now possible to conceive of reality as an unbroken wholeness, segmented and interrupted only by our act of measuring it. In medicine, we see a psychosomatic theory of disease gradually supplanting the rigid mind-body dualism characteristic of an earlier age of scientific medicine. And in ecology, we see the preference for intrinsically simple systems which marked mechanistic science being replaced by the understanding that in living systems it is only a high degree of complexity which makes them sustainable. Briefly, we can list three attributes of the old scientific paradigm which are now being revised. First, that we can know the world as an object, separate from ourselves as subjects. Second, that we can deal with the parts of a system independently of each other. And third, that we can understand reality exclusively in terms of cause and effect. Let us now examine these in more detail, beginning with the idea that we can observe the world without influencing it. David Harrison is a physicist at the University of Toronto. The universe is essentially participatory. That, at least at the level of the quantum, the concept of the observer who watches what goes on um, through a pane of glass, as it were, without taking part, that that concept is untenable with the results. Um, this is often called Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, that our act of measurement, our act of perception of a physical system radically and qualitatively changes the nature of that system being observed. And if one asks a, questions, a question about what was the system before we observed it, there's no answer. Quantum mechanics describes two things. It describes partly a fact and partly our knowledge of that fact. The second key idea that we want to look at is the independence of variables, the notion that factors within a system can be separated, controlled, and varied independently of each other. This idea really only applies to very simple systems. And one of the places where it began to break down as a scientific dogma was in soil science, which actually has to deal with a very complex interacting system. Stuart Hill is an associate professor of entomology and an advisor to the Ecological Agriculture Project at the McDonald College campus of McGill University. He argues that an ecological agriculture must base itself on an understanding of the interdependence of variables, and further, that a complex system can never be completely analyzed without the use of intuition. If I want to understand how to manage um, a crop so that it doesn't get pests, doesn't get attacked by pests, if I want to do that ecologically in a sustainable way, there's no way I can do that using the conventionally acceptable methods of experimentation where I isolate one variable at a time and look at it because each of the components that I want to look at in reality has relationships with all the other components and when I look at them one at a time the fact that the system doesn't function I could predict sat in my armchair and it seems to me that we that's exactly what we're doing in a lot of our experimentation we're, we're looking at malfunctioning systems in the experiments whereas my strategy would be to put together 
a system that had all the components that I thought would help it to work based on all the knowledge and experience that's available. And if one had to experiment with that system, uh, one would do it by eliminating uh, variables one at a time. Like one might, if, if the system required uh, a certain presence of a certain plant, um, instead of having the system with nothing in it except that plant, one would have the system with everything in it and then just remove that plant and see what happens. And what we would learn from this process, I think, of switching the experiment round from simplicity to complexity is, is to understand, first of all, that systems do require a high level of complexity to function in a, in a sustainable way, which we tend to have moved away from. And secondly, that in reality, there's no way you can completely analyze that whole system. And so you are going to have to rely on intuitive abilities and wisdom and experience and things that we can't completely explain in order to manage it in an efficient, sustainable way. And at the moment, that's what science, in a sense, prevents us from doing. It says we, you, you mustn't manage it if you don't understand it. And I think in, in the maturing of science, we have to move from that position to a position of being able to incorporate that intuitive wisdom component of our abilities. The third element of mechanistic science that we need to examine is the idea that reality can be analyzed in terms of linear sequences of cause and effect. The psychologist Carl Jung found the hypothesis of straight-line cause and effect so inadequate to explain the phenomena which he observed in his psychological researches that he eventually put forward a supplementary hypothesis, which he called synchronicity. This he referred to as an a-causal connecting principle. The essential idea is that at any moment the universe is embraced within a single pattern which constitutes a sort of trans-causal connection between apparently unconnected events. An example would be the connection between astrological birth signs and personality types. This example was used by Jung himself and has been demonstrated in experiments conducted in England by the psychologist Hans Eysenck and the astrologer Jeff Mayo. Jung put forward the idea of synchronicity as an explanation of physical events, which he felt could build a bridge between depth psychology and quantum physics. But Dr. Ira Progoff, who has written about Jung's theory, has chosen to apply it more to the interpretation of inner events. Suddenly, something is clicked, and something changes, and suddenly I see things come together in a way that they weren't coming together before. Now, and then I make a synthesis. It comes to me. It's not that I make a synthesis. It's that a synthesis makes itself. And I take it that when two or more of these inner processes come together in a way that just clicks, that's a kind of interior synchronicity. And it leads either to creative awareness and new, new ideas, or it may lead to a... a uh, a new context in which we have feelings about our life. And I have the sense that if in the modern, in the next period, more people uh, are able to work in this inner dimension, synchronicity will become a perception 
that just becomes more and more natural to us. We'll just know that you go on doing your thing and things will come together. That's sort of the essence of it, and that they will come together uh, by themselves. That's the other part of, of synchronicity because modern persons feel they have to be able to control things. Well, the essence of synchronicity is that things happen by themselves. That means without my controlling them. And uh, we in the modern world are accustomed to feel if we don't control things, it may be a little dangerous. I have to have my life in control. Well, it's one thing to have your life in control. It's another thing to be open for new things to happen. And in that sense, synchronicity is not just a theory for interpreting physical events, as Jung was emphasizing, but it's an attitude toward the unfolding of life experience. In his book, Jung, Synchronicity and Human Destiny, Dr. Progoff tells a story which illustrates the connection between synchronicity and subjective attitude, a story which hints at the existence of a primary process in which events are responsive to subjective intentions. I close the book by telling the experience of Abraham Lincoln, where he, uh, some man needed money and gave him a, asked him for, to give him a dollar for a barrel of odds and ends that looked like it was simply junk. And Lincoln gave him a dollar and took the barrel and just did it to be a good fellow, as he would. And then, and at that time, he was uh, without an education and didn't know what he would do with his life out there in the wilderness in the West. And one day, he opened that barrel and found that it was a practically complete set of Blackstone's uh, commentaries on the law. And when he read that, and in those days in America, reading that and getting a little practical experience made you a lawyer. And so it turned out that Lincoln's just being a good fellow and giving a man a dollar when he needed it was the way that Lincoln eventually became a lawyer and then a congressman and then a president and had his whole uh, role in history, which was, uh, seemed to me, an example of synchronicity, of events coming together in a very unexpected way. But you'd really, wouldn't you have to say that underlying the synchronicity was a certain quality of being, a quality of person in Lincoln, an openness to events that made it possible for a synchronistic event to happen in his life. The idea that there might be a connection between the quality of Lincoln's being and the apparently random event in which he was involved obviously confounds the assumptions of mechanistic science, which based itself on the idea that the world is entirely separate from us and indifferent to our intentions. But as this model becomes subject to greater and greater challenges, the idea that there is only one way of seeing which can be described as scientific begins to break down. This opens us to other traditions and other ways of seeing. If, for example, theoretical physics begins to sound like mysticism, Shouldn't this make us consider the possibility that mysticism is simply a form of science which we couldn't formerly recognize? Paul Snyder is a philosopher of science who teaches at Temple University in Philadelphia and who has written about this subject in a book entitled Toward One Science, The Convergence of Traditions. The tension that exists between the innovation, the change in, in, uh, um, in approach, uh, the change in worldview, if you like, 
and the existing worldview, the, the, the remains of the old mechanism, is effectively a creative tension. Uh, the, uh, the new conceptions don't catch on immediately. They have to prove themselves. Uh, they have to prove themselves better than what existed before. And in that way, the, the, what I like to view as a, as a very strong evolutionary pattern in the, in the, uh, the context of, of group beliefs, uh, of, of, what, of cultural beliefs, if you like, the evolutionary pattern is underscored. And right now, we obviously have to broaden our conceptions. Uh, we've been very culturally constrained up until, really, this century. We haven't recognized that there have been genuine scientific traditions that have developed in the Orient, for example. Uh, we've treated that as some uh, strange form of esoteric superstition. And suddenly, we find ourselves confronted with real successes uh, on the part of the Oriental traditions that we have to account for, we have to accommodate them. I mean, acupuncture works, and so does meditation. And that's, that's taken us as, by surprise, in a way, as a, as a culture. Isolated individuals recognized it uh, a century or more ago. But as a culture, we haven't really had to confront that there are other ways of approaching uh, human problems, other ways of approaching nature, that can yield successful results. Why was our science unable until recently to come to terms, say, with yoga psychologies? Well, we, we couldn't understand the premises involved in it. Uh, uh, and again, part of that traces back to, the, to this notion of unique correctness. And we had very strict rules here in the West that, that uh, unless you were dealing with uh, your subject matter as the workings of a mechanical system, then you weren't making sense. You weren't being scientific. And uh, there was just no way to uh, break into the, 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 the style of thinking that begins with uh, a characterization of experience itself in mechanistic terms. In a way, we had to develop a certain kind of humility, and I think uh, the developments in physics in this century have contributed to that humility, about any successful formulation of a theory. And that sense of non-uniqueness, of, of our preferred way not being the only way to approach the subject matter, I think it has uh, opened the door to, uh, to looking at these, uh, uh, again, alien conceptions in a way that it could not have been opened before the uh, uh, drastic changes in physics in the century. You have uh, the, the competing interpretations of quantum theory, for example, which are both held simultaneously by, by major portions of the community. And the, the rapid changes, for example, in our version of, of what the basic constituents of matter are. When the physicists start talking among themselves about quarks and the gluons that hold them together, sometimes you think they're kidding. It's, a, it's as if, in, in, in the very labeling of the particles that they're talking about and the properties that the quarks have, like charm and flavor and color, uh, as if it's all being done tongue-in-cheek, knowing perfectly well that, that uh, uh, within another 10 years we won't be talking this way anymore. Uh, we'll have a whole new vocabulary for describing the structure of the atom. Uh, that sense of, of um, developing the best possible model, theoretical model that we can right now, but knowing perfectly well that uh, the best we can hope for is to be wrong in interesting ways uh, in the long run, has, I think, uh, made it possible for us to take the, the Oriental uh, people seriously.
an altogether startling example of the unsuspected ways in which we may be connected with each other is provided by the research of Dr. William Condon of the Boston University School of Medicine. Using a method which he calls microanalysis, he has come to the conclusion that we move in synchrony with each other's speech in a way which seems impossible to explain in terms of ordinary cause and effect. George Leonard has written about Dr. Condon's work in a book called The Silent Pulse. He found out by taking very slow motion pictures of people when they're talking to one another, that if one individual is talking to another person, say, I'm talking to you, you are making little, what he calls, micro-movements. These movements are so fast and so small that they generally cannot be seen by the naked eye. But if you take this film, I was in his laboratory, and we would run this film very, very slowly, you would see that every time I say a word, your micro-movements are precisely synchronized, not only with the syllables of my words, but with the subunits within the syllables. For example, if I say ask, you can break that down into four phonemes, shall we say, little subunits. Now, if you were going to move at any time during that one word, you would move precisely in rhythm with those subunits of those syllables. Now, it's really kind of amazing because it's not just reflexes, because reflexes are not that fast. It's as if we are truly connected, entrained is the word that he uses, as if we are one energy field, shall we say. The amazing thing is, if I were to stop talking for, say, three seconds, then begin again, your first micro-movement would be precisely synchronized with my very first syllable, not with any kind of delay at all, so you can't figure it in terms of stimulus and response or action and reaction. The uh, best way to say it is we're connected. And then the amazing thing that Dr. Condon discovered after that is that newborn babies, even though they can't understand the semantic meaning of the words at all, newborn babies are precisely synchronized with the subunits and their mother's uh, language. They come in, in other words, we come into this world already connected, even though we don't know the meaning of the language, our movements are synchronized with anyone that we're really listening to, like our mother's voice. And therefore, when any two people are talking, they're really going through a dance. They're also dancing in a very subtle sort of way. William Condon developed his theory of entrainment by analyzing movements which are below the normal threshold of our perceptions. Many of the most baffling ideas of modern physics are drawn from observations made at the submicroscopic level of the quantum. The conclusion which this seems to point to is that once we step outside the world which common sense itself has constructed, common sense is no longer a very useful guide. Physicist David Harrison. When we say the word common sense, we're talking about a number of presuppositions based on a very limited range of sensory data. Um, on the absolute scale of things, uh, our sensory apparatus can only perceive a limited range of sizes. Um, anytime that you've tried to contemplate how far is a light year and how far are those stars away from us on a nice sunny night, get an idea of, of, of how limited we are in those perceptions. We can't see things that are very small and we can't see things that are very large. We can't see things that are moving very fast. Uh, the speed of light is basically infinite for us because it just is so large that we can't pin it down in anything that we do in our normal everyday life.
Um, and our language structures have built up around those sensory impressions that we got. And that's what we call common sense. So when Einstein started talking about time being the fourth dimension, everybody said, what's this crazy guy talking about? That violates common sense. Um, to which Einstein always responded, well, common sense is just those prejudices that you acquired at a very early age. Um, time is relative. Space is relative. Energy and mass are different names for the same thing. This whole list of things violating common sense. One of the ways in which quantum physics has violated common sense is in the observation of a strange connectedness between apparently separated quantum phenomena, which seems to violate the fundamental axiom that nothing in the universe can travel faster than the speed of light. In 1964, the Scots physicist J.S. Bell published a mathematical theorem which highlighted this contradiction between certain common-sense assumptions and the apparent interrelatedness of spatially separated events. The Bell theorem has been successively refined to the point now where we can see in stark relief what the assumptions of these common-sense predictions are. And the assumptions, as currently understood, are three and only three. Uh, the first assumption is the assumption of realism. There is a reality separate from its being observed. The second assumption is that the universe is essentially local, that you can't have transmission of information or influences any faster than the speed of light. And the third assumption is that inductive inference is a valid logical procedure. So one makes these three assumptions and proves quantum mechanics is in conflict with these three very reasonable assumptions. Now, this was all in the level of Gedanken experiments, thought experiments. People were just going through the details of these assumptions mathematically. Uh, since then, the matter's been put to experimental test. And that's what the Clauser-Friedman experiments and a number of other experiments have done. And the quantum correlations have been shown to be true. Now, this does not say that quantum mechanics is a correct theory, although this is a prediction that quantum mechanics has made that is experimentally confirmed. One can say that the assumptions of realism, locality, and inductive inference, at least one, is incorrect. The experimental verification of the Bell theorem has created a sort of theoretical free-for-all in the world of physics. And out of this vortex has emerged the new theory of David Bohm, Bohm is a professor of physics at the University of London and a former colleague of Albert Einstein's. David Harrison briefly describes his theory. Bohm has looked at this situation and his choice for how to set up a, a, a new way of looking, a new way of describing, is very radical. Basically, one of the things that he throws out in his new way of looking is the idea of spatial or temporal separation. He says that there is a implicate order, he calls it, an implicate order, um, an unmanifested level of reality. And in this unmanifested level of reality, there is no spatial separation. There is no time separation. It's similar to a hologram in the sense that each piece contains the entire image. 
one of Professor Bohm's favorite analogies for the difference between the implicate order and the explicate order, which is what we see in our everyday life, is you take a cylinder and fill it up with glycerin or corn syrup. And you take an eyedropper and you take some black ink and you put a drop of black ink in this cylinder and you slowly begin to rotate it. And what happens is, is that the glycerin or corn syrup or whatever it is that you're using begins to rotate also and this black spot of ink disperses. And the corn syrup just gets slightly gray. Now that is an analogy of the implicate order. If you want to see the explicate order, reverse the rotation and slowly the black spot will reappear. David Harrison's reference to the hologram as an analogy for David Bohm's theory of the implicate and explicate orders of energy may require a brief explanation. Holography is a type of photography using laser light which enables the projection of a three-dimensional image which stands out in space. Its most remarkable feature is that if the film used to project this image is cut in half, the whole image can still be projected. And no matter how little of the film is used, the whole image is still there, although resolution is lost as the size decreases. This is an intriguing metaphor, if nothing else, and it has helped to focus the idea that reality itself may be constructed in much the same way as a hologram. Marilyn Ferguson is the author of The Aquarian Conspiracy and the publisher of The Brain-Mind Bulletin. The holographic model of reality is essentially a synthesis of brain research and physics. Uh, Carl Pribram, a brain scientist at Stanford, put a theory that he had with uh, the theory of one of Einstein's protégés, David Bohm, a theoretical physicist at the University of London. A number of other people had been working in that direction. Basically what it's about is this. Our brains actually create what we think of as reality out of interference patterns. You might say, being very rough about it, out of vibrations that come from another dimension, another level of reality, which is more primary than this one. That level of reality is all, in a sense, potential. And it transcends time and space. What our brains do is they translate it into something through a kind of quick mathematical interpretation. They translate it into something that feels to us like reality, something that we can handle, but that's very filtered down. Uh, the late Aldous Huxley had referred to the brain as a reducing valve. Uh, Henri Bergson, the French philosopher, had uh, said that the brain, in fact, filters out reality. And that's more or less what the holographic theory says, that the way our brains are structured, they are only able to, to handle and process normally a certain amount of information. And we then because uh, of the way our senses work, we interpret that as being the color red or being hardness or as being concrete reality. It's interesting because this whole theory, which came about really because of, of evidence that a number of these theorists were trying to make sense of, sounds very much like the idea from uh, Hindu philosophy of Maya, that the world is an illusion. Uh, the way they talk about it in terms of holographic theory is that this is, in a way, this is a secondary reality and that the primary reality is, the, 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 in a sense, the truly powerful one, the one with all the potential in it. Prebram has, in interviews in the last 
two or three years, in fact, speculated that what we think of as mystical consciousness, and this would include those expanded states of awareness that I talked about, that in mystical consciousness, uh, it may be that we're tuning in in a different way. We achieve some unique perhaps balance, but that the brain goes into a different state in which it has access to that primary domain. So that the phenomena that are experienced in what has been called peak experiences um, or in meditation or such phenomena as healing or telepathy or, or precognition really are simply the result, simply I say, they're the result of going back to that primary level of reality. And the reason that you haven't been able to trace the energy, uh, for example, a lot of research has tried to find out what is it that a healer sends to a healy, and it's as if um, they can't find how it gets from here to there. What the holographic theory says is there isn't any there. For brain scientist Carl Pribram, the holographic model of brain function helped to resolve a long-standing difficulty involved in trying to localize the site of memory in the brain. For David Bohm, it addressed anomalies in quantum physics. It also contributed to the understanding of well-documented parapsychological phenomena. An example is the experiments in remote viewing conducted by Harold Putoff and Russell Targ at the Stanford Research Institute. George Leonard. These are experiments which I have investigated personally, and I've followed them, and I've read all the papers, and uh, contrary to some... Uh, rather spoiled sports scientists who would do anything in their power to keep any kind of extrasensory perception from being scientifically respectable. In spite of all of those efforts, these experiments have been replicated a number of times, and uh, almost every time someone tries to replicate them, it seems to work. The experiments basically are done like this, just briefly. An experimenter who's going to be the remote viewer, shall we say, will be closeted in a sealed room, and this room will be shielded by a Faraday cage so that no trick radio signals could be sent to it. In other words, it's impervious to ordinary electromagnetic waves. We'll be closeted there with another experimenter who's simply there to ask questions and elicit responses. Then a third person goes to a locked safe that's um, in which 100 targets within a half a mile of this uh, shielded room are kept. Now, one of these 100 targets will be given in a sealed envelope to the um, person who's going out to the remote area. When the person arrives at the remote location, the experimenter in the sealed room just closes his eyes or meditates or whatever and just tries to see what, say whatever comes out. The uh, other experimenter asks questions. What are you seeing now? What's coming to mind? Uh, and then all of this is being taped. A transcript of the tape is made. And then later, another person who doesn't know anything about the experiment at all is given, say that the uh, person, the remote viewer, does 10 remote viewings. All 10 of these are given to the uh, judge who takes the transcripts and goes out to the remote locations and matches them, tries to say which one is the most accurate match to this remote location. And the results have been quite extraordinary. Uh, so good that it would be like one chance out of 30,000 uh, that it could be done by chance, or one chance out of uh, 200,000. The re results have been, been quite remarkable in remote viewing. So this seems to indicate that we do have knowledge somehow of distant events if we can simply quiet our 
busy minds and the chatter in our minds down a little bit that we have a certain amount of knowledge. This knowledge is not clear. Now, in some of the experiments, it was quite remarkably clear. The remote viewer would make sketches of, uh, of the target area that were quite startling, but not always. Still, again and again, positive results were obtained in these experiments. St. Francis of Assisi, what we are looking for is what is looking. What we are looking for is what is looking. This finds an interesting parallel in holographic brain theory through the suggestion that what we perceive is the same as the brain process by which we perceive it. The possibility of a new way of seeing the world is enfolded within us. Neither brain science nor physics can teach it to us, but only indicate its possibility. Where we must look for it is in our own development, and this is what Joseph Chilton Pierce has tried to do in a book called Magical Child. What Pierce has done in this book is to try to adapt the theory of the Swiss biologist come psychologist Jean Piaget to the imagination of new human possibilities. Piaget supposed that our development is composed of discrete stages, each of which unfolds within the mind-brain system at its proper time. These quantum leaps in brain development take place at approximately the ages of 7, 11, and 15, and their existence has been confirmed by the biophysicist Hermann Epstein, who has discovered that brain growth spurts take place at around these times. What Pierce has argued is that if we were to respect this biological plan of development, rather than breaking it up by imposing on it an arbitrary system of education, we would find that we had remarkable abilities which presently atrophy or are destroyed. By slightly altering and extending Piaget's stages of development, Pierce has been able to synthesize them with David Bohm's new physics, and this we will come to in a minute. But first we need to explore further what the stages of development are according to Pierce's adaptation of Piaget. The first stage is called sensory motor learning, in which the child constructs his knowledge of the physical world the explicate order, according to David Bohm. The second stage, beginning at age seven, is called concrete operational thinking, and we pick up Joe Pierce's explanation at this point. There are two things that happen there. One is that logic literally falls into the child's brain overnight. And Piaget says it's a quantum leap of the brain system. That is, yesterday the child thinks one way, Today, he thinks an entirely different way. We know that Epstein and his, his findings of brain growth spurts, that one takes place right there at age seven. And this, this change is, is radical. The pre-logical state of the child up till then is literally kind of wiped out in the brain system, and it begins the construction of an entirely new way of looking at the world. And this way is, is based on, first of all, the capacity for measurement, a logical measurement of the world. Uh, and this enters into the brain overnight. It, it isn't a learned thing. It isn't an additive quantitative process that builds up. It's a quantum leap of the brain. 
And in addition to this ability to logically measure out his world, uh, there's, there's the ability to, as Piaget put it, to take in information from out there in the world and change that information according to uh, an abstract notion. The qualification being that the child cannot come up with the abstract notion himself. He must be given it through a model. We know that about 80% of all the child's learning is through role modeling. And the issue is that at age seven, the child is going to learn whatever kinds of concrete operational thinking are given him to learn through his role models, that is, through his parents and his superiors, and even his peers to a certain extent. So whatever the, the, the directions we set up for them at age seven for their concrete operations, that's the direction they will take. I like to use some of the intuition shockers that we get from cross-cultural studies. For instance, the fact that on the island of Ceylon, uh, in the East Indies, among the Balinese, among the Polynesians, uh, even in fact in Africa and, and in the Mid-East, you have people who walk on coals of fire. Uh, they'll walk across 20-foot pits of uh, white hot uh, coals that will melt aluminum on contact. We've had a lot of scientific studies done of this, and I mean, use of all sorts of scientific equipment. Uh, it's not an illusion. This is a perfectly real thing. Now, this takes place through concrete operational thinking. Uh, that is the ability to take in information from the world out there and change the information according to an abstract idea. And each has learned it through role modeling. And a seven-year-old child if they're given their role models for this kind of activity, can immediately follow it. They can't before that time because concrete operations, no thinking, hasn't moved into the brain system. It's quite stage-specific. If it's not developed within a certain time, why, it's lost. Uh, it atrophies, just like all the other abilities atrophy. But the point is that the child is limited only by the kind of role models that they're given. The stage which succeeds concrete operations is called formal operations a stage which psychologist Herbert Koplowitz has suggested may correspond to what we have called scientific thinking. This is the stage at which abstract thinking unfolds. But Pierce stresses that each stage of development can only successfully unfold when the requirements of the prior stage have been fulfilled. True formal operations depend on the mastery of concrete operations. Joe Pierce. If a child could unfold uh, concrete operations and understand I'm not saying that they all have to run around walking on coals of fire that'll melt aluminum. None of that is necessary to concrete operational development. Uh, the kind of concrete operations which Piaget saw uh, would certainly fit uh, the pattern well enough, too. That is just simply the creation or the making of things out of the materials of his immediate surroundings. That's what concrete operational thinking is all about, is creativity, creating things out of given uh, material substance. Uh, now, were that allowed to really unfold without breaking up the natural pattern, then when formal operational thinking un uh, opened uh, somewhere around 11, uh, then it would have a basis on which to, to build. Now, it's interesting that Denmark, which has always been kind of an advanced state, uh, has now, uh, they're trying at least, and against enormous parental opposition, to uh, um, stop learning uh, to read and write until age 11 because they're aware of the fact that it's breaking up uh, the, um, the processes of the, of the biological development. 
Now, if, if, if you could prevent formal operations such as reading and writing from being put in too soon, you see, and allow the others to unfold, then true formal operational thinking as it unfolded at age 11 gives the ability to move into pure creativity. That by pure creativity, all I mean is a type of creation which does not have to refer back to physical process. That's all in the world it means. That is, you're spinning off from all your reference to an outgrowth of physical process and entering into pure mental process. At age 11 is the age for it. There's no question of that. That's been recognized, in fact, historically throughout cultures that the big a big change takes at this, at this point. Then the, the child is ready to move into uh, what old Northrop Fry called the eternal world of the mind. This is when lang language can become purely semantic, that language can become completely dissociated from its reference back to physical objects. And at this point, you enter into a pure form of creativity. What the entire biological plan is, is about is the development of autonomy, that is, one's ability to stand on their own feet as a self-sufficient creative unit. It is essential to Pierce's thinking that if we violate the biological plan of development that he has outlined, we destroy the possibilities inherent in this plan. Brain research has also begun to show us that in our mania for early reading, we may be interpreting real creative gifts as learning disabilities. Marilyn Ferguson, publisher of the Brain Mind Bulletin. One of the things I think people are discovering, and every time I bring this up, to an audience of teachers, there is such nodding and such agreement and such a sigh of relief you can't imagine that many of the people we consider to be learning disabled are among the most gifted people in the society. Uh, one of the things brain research is showing us is that dyslexia, uh, which is a difficulty in learning to read, is very often coupled with strong gifts from what has been called the other side of the brain. Uh, from the right hemisphere of the brain, the ability to see relationships, artistic abilities, uh, empathy, uh, certain types of sensitivity that has not been rewarded typically by our educational systems. And uh, so if, if uh, a child may be very gifted, very imaginative, artistic, empathetic, goes into a classroom, uh, doesn't learn to read easily because he or she has a different neurology. They're more, you might say, more right-brained person, gets put in the dummy class, gets put in remedial reading, gets labeled learning disabled, gets put into special classes, and is labeled, as far as that child is concerned, for life, you know, unless some, there's some lucky intervention. And some of the most creative people, most of the most creative people in our society, uh, at one time or another, have tended to get bracketed that way. And educators are now beginning to wake up to that. And even though the research on the left brain and the right brain uh, is often oversimplified, as it's been popularized, it's true in many ways, and it's a wonderful metaphor to finally allow us to appreciate that we have more than one type of intelligence. We come finally to Joe Pierce's attempt to synthesize the ideas of Piaget with the physics of David Bohm. For those who know Piaget's work, it is probably necessary to point out that in making this synthesis, Pierce has altered the stages of development as originally laid out by Piaget. He has telescoped two early stages together and elaborated a fourth stage out of Piaget's notion of reversibility thinking. That said, here is Joe Pierce. 
David Bohm finds four orders of energy in the creative process, and he finds that through these he can explain all of the anomalies and problems that are facing uh, contemporary physics right now. And those orders are that there's an, an explicit or physical order of energy, which is a weak energy system. There's an implicit uh, order of energy that underlies this physical process, which is a vastly more powerful energy system, and that the physical energy system, or the universe, is enfolded within the implicate order. That's kind of a complicated thing about this enfolding and unfolding. But then beyond that is a state of pure energy, and then beyond that what he calls a level of insight intelligence, which is the, the creative spark out of which the whole creative process arises. Now, the interesting thing is that Bohm claims that all of this is enfolded within any human brain. Uh, and that the unfolding of this should be, of course, human development. Uh, Bohm didn't tie this in with Piaget because it, that wasn't in a physicist's uh, domain. But uh, that's what I've been doing this past year, and I've been asked to uh, go with, uh, appear with Bohm on, uh, in some of his uh, appearances, you know, in Canada and the United States and Europe. Uh, because of this tying of these two together, which has happened. And it's not a game's playing. You'll find that the child in the, in the first sensory motor level is literally uh, constructing, as Piaget would say, constructing his knowledge of the world, which is constructing a knowledge of the implicit and explicit orders of energy in Bohm's creative system. And um, then uh, when concrete operational thinking breaks into the brain, Overnight, there at age seven, it's the child's, or should be the child's, discovery of how he can use the implicit orders of energy within the system uh, to change or manipulate explicate order or physical process as needed or according to the kind of models he's given. And then when he moves on up to formal operational thinking, he's simply moving into an area of pure creativity, uh, Bohm's third level of energy, which doesn't have to refer back to any physical process. Uh, that is, it's, it, it's spinning out of, of, of this enfoldment within the brain system of pure creativity. Uh, and this is the movement from concreteness toward abstraction, which you find all of the developmentalists talking about. Uh, that it's a, a movement from the weakest energy system up to the most powerful. So you finally get the child somewhere around 15, or I mean the young person, with another brain growth spurt, should be moving into uh, what um, Piaget refers to as reversibility thinking, the ability to trace thought back to its source and to trace insight and the creative discovery process back to its source and then repeat the process ad liberty. And what this means is that, uh, according to David Bohm's physics, it would be to trace from the weak energy system of the physical through the implicate into the, uh, into the pure potential energy, and then into the realm of insight intelligence, out of which the whole process of the mind-brain proceeds, which means that the young person at that stage would have the total uh, realm of creativity at his disposal. And the interesting thing is how in ancient yogic psychology from the East, no matter which brand of it, I mean, whether it's Patanjali or the Advaita Vedantas or Kashmir Shaivism, uh, no matter which of the Eastern philosophies you're looking at, they recognize four, as they call them, states of consciousness. And they are the physical, 
the subtle, the causal, and supercausal, and they are exactly the four stages of development that you find in Piaget or in David Bohm's orders of energy. And so that, again, what the child is trying to express is his movement from the earliest, the sensory motor, uh, not what you would call primitive, it's just the physical process, on up into the highest levels of creativity, which are in the brain system. The melding of the theories of Piaget with those of David Bohm or those of ancient yoga, would seem to be a part of a general pattern of convergence of ideas towards a new synthesis of knowledge. The old paradigm of mechanistic science is clearly in decline, despite its residual cultural influence. The new pattern is only beginning to emerge in popular awareness. But as it does, culture will eventually begin to organize itself around the new vision, as it did around the old. I think that the cultural implications are we either recognize what we are tapping into, we either recognize the, the movement of, of the mind-brain system and come to some ag agreement with what's built into us here, or it's going to be destroyed. There's an, a statement in the Gnostic Gospels that if, unless you bring out that which is within you, that which is within you will destroy you. And I think that's quite true. You find exactly the same idea in the, uh, in the yogic uh, sutras. And you find sort of the same thing implied in David Bohm's new physics, that we're at a point of, of no return. There's no chance of, of turning back to some primitive stage in which we, we can't pretend that we haven't untapped certain levels of the mind-brain system. I, I think of old uh, Huxley, the biologist, who said you have to sit down before the fact like a little child and be willing to give up all your preconceived notions and follow uh, nature to whatever abyss she might lead you, you see, or, or you'll learn nothing. And I think the problem is that we're faced, we're faced now with a, a serious breakdown because of our not going along with what is, has unfolded within us on a natural level. You have been listening to the third program in our series, Between Two Ages. Heard on tonight's program were David Harrison, Stuart Hill, Ira Progoff, Paul Snyder, George Leonard, Marilyn Ferguson, and Joe Pierce. The program was prepared and presented by David Cayley. Producer, Bernie Looked. A reading list for these programs will be available at the end of the series. If you'd like one, please write us. Our address is Ideas, Post Office Box 500, Terminal A, Toronto, Ontario, M5W1E6. Once again, that's Ideas, Box 500, Terminal A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Tomorrow night, the third program in our series on the political economy of energy. I'm Russ Germain. Good night. <laughs>